Hi, this is Sergeant Betsy Brantner-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I have a guest with me this morning that I am anxious for you to meet. He's a guy you probably already know. Um, he's been in and out of the news cycle for several years, but there is so much more to Dr. Trey Penny than maybe a few headlines you've read. He is a police sergeant, retired now. He's a PhD. He is the president of the National Fallen Officers Foundation. And, uh, and he's a guy who decided not to just sit on the sidelines, but to get involved, not only in his community, but nationally. Dr. Sergeant Penny, welcome to the program. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Sorry. So let's let's get right to it and just talk about why you decided to get into police work. Uh, look, I, I grew up in a in an inner city, Houston, Texas. I mean, I grew up in one of these communities that was anti-police, anti-government, anti-everything. And um, for me, the interactions have always been, uh, I never had those direct interactions with law enforcement until like the most tragic time. Uh, and at the age of 16, I witnessed my cousin get killed in front of me. Um, the day before her wedding day. And, and the first, my first interaction with law enforcement was, was these officers showing up that didn't look like me, uh, that treated my family with respect, that treated me, um, were, were very respectful to that situation. And, and look, I, I tell people all the time that the most tragic time of my life was also the most impactful time of my life uh, because those officers were actually an inspiration that caused me to go into law enforcement. So um, you know, that was the impetus for me to join the United States Army to get out of the inner city and, and ultimately pay my way to uh, entering the Dallas Police Department. And you spent the last two years. Right. You spent you know, 22 years in one of the largest police departments in the nation doing all kinds of uh, various assignments, didn't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, this is uh, that was probably the. I would say if I, with all the accomplishments I've achieved in life, I want to rank the Dallas Police Department and being a sergeant uh, within that agency, the, the my highest honor because, um, you know, looking at, at at the things I've been through in life and and uh, the experiences I had just on the ground and dealing with the people, the relationships that I developed over time. I mean, it was there's nothing that can compare to it. And the sergeant's the best job in the agency, isn't it? It is, isn't it? <laughs> So Sarge, talk about the National Fallen Officers Foundation, which you are the president of. What prompted you to start that organization? Yeah, so in short, uh, basically the National Fallen Officers Foundation evolved uh, over time from the Dallas Fallen Officers Foundation, which was um, initially created in, back in 2009 um, after one of my, my friends got killed in the line of duty. And, um, you know, we saw what it was like. I mean, in the immediate aftermath of an officer dying, you know, we're trying to figure out how to get resources to the family. So we were doing barbecues and all, all these different type of fundraisers to try to raise money. And I saw how hard it was. And, um, you know, ultimately we were able to support the widow. And uh, afterwards, she, she told me after the funeral was over, she was very appreciative. And she said that, um, you know, what people don't realize is whenever an officer dies in line of duty, and, and look, we're police. I mean, we, you know, a lot of officers don't have their wives on a lot of, on, on their paperwork. Uh, we talk all the time about officers, go get your insurance, go get, you know, do your will and get all this stuff together. But officers, the reality is they don't do it. Um, so this was one of the one of the families that didn't have, um, she wasn't on her husband's bank account and all that. So everything was frozen. 
So if you think about her having to uh, prepare for this funeral, family members coming in, being able to buy clothes, you know, buy food and, and set that whole thing up, uh, she didn't have the resources. So she said she wanted to have an organization to, to be able to do that. And um, one that was not, you know, union affiliated or um, that, that didn't have, you have to have membership or anything like that. So that was like the initial concept for the foundation. So I created it. Uh, really, really put took took the mission forward in 2015, and uh, in 2018 is when National formed, and, and it, it essentially we it just became a robust mission because locally, um, you know, we would get calls from across the state to, to get support, and then people from across the nation start calling the state for support, and I say, look, you know what, it, we need to have this national base where we can just support officers' family whenever things happen. So that was essentially the concept behind it. And I tell you, I don't know that the general public understands the resources that it takes when a uh, because you know I think a lot of people think, and especially a big department like Dallas, you know, oh, doesn't the department just pay for everything? Well, they don't, and there's line of duty benefits that come forward eventually, but right. it, that takes a lot of time and paperwork. And in the meantime, like you said, you've got to pre prepare for a burial. There's family coming in, there's clothes to purchase, there's people to feed, and there's family life to get on with while all that's going on. So, you know, the concept that you came up with, um, it's needed, it is needed nationally for sure, isn't it? Yeah, I think a, a big part of it as well. I mean, it's not just just more so the, the support. And this was actually what really evolved nationally into a different space because uh, yeah, we want to support these officers, support the families. Uh, but what I saw was a lack of of, um, of 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 motivation to advocate for the interests of our officers. Right? I, I just I just saw like on the ground, especially dealing with political leadership or, or leadership within executive leadership within police departments. There are a lot of issues that they just simply don't want to touch. And a lot of times, those same issues, especially when it involves stuff like race, um, the, the unions don't want to get into the middle of it. So. Um, what I wanted to do was bring more so a common sense approach to addressing issues as they impact officers, all officers in the line of duty. Um, so that's kind of a, the, the second piece of where I wanted to go with the national what was the advocacy, right? It really educating people about things that are happening and, and how officers in the field are really being impacted, right? And um, which kind of leads me into how um, Sergeant Penny kind of evolved into this, this, this name, right? And, and yeah. what where the controversy came from, because uh, I had to get in the middle of a lot of a lot of, a lot of things in order to address issues that were being ignored for, for law enforcement as a whole. Absolutely. And that brings us to July 7th, 2016, which was one of the darkest days in uh, law enforcement history. And I remember I got up that morning and and heard what had happened in Dallas. You can talk about that. But I just remember feeling despondent at what happened on that day brokenhearted truly talk about that day for you yeah no th this was um probably and, and it's, it's hard for me not to get emotional talking about it but um uh you know two of the officers were really good friends of mine and um but to make make the make a long story short this was this was all based on this this um this radicalized agenda that we saw uh, falling in 2015 with, with Mike Brown. I mean, actually it started initially in 2014 with Trayvon Martin and where they tried to get the Black Lives Matter movement really tried to gain traction, but they couldn't 
uh, because they had a lot of different uh, different social agendas and, and LGBT wrapped into the movement at the same time that they were trying to connect with black nationalism and they kind of didn't line up. So 2015 after Mike Brown, they had already worked out those kinks and uh, it was it was the perfect opportunity. When you saw Ferguson, uh, they set Ferguson on fire. And, and what I was seeing on my side was, was not necessarily, um, you know, the, the, the movement itself. Like I saw, I saw the radicalism of what the messaging was within the movement uh, based off of what they were saying. I mean, they wanted black nationalism. They wanted the black, uh, you know, it was, they wanted to create this race war, blacks against whites type thing, right? Um, but at the same time, these these groups were, they knew how to operate on social media. And I had uh, coordinated with a, um, I was working on my doctorate degree at the time, and I found a, um, a cyber intelligence company out of New York that was called GOPTEC that um, I relied on for, for their intelligence data. They were already finding these, these trends online related to international terrorism. And I wanted to see if they can apply those same mechanisms to domestic terrorism. Because what we saw with Black Lives Matter was, and, and guys, look, it, it's not a political thing, right? The definition with, for domestic terrorism was already laid out for us by the Department of Justice. Any group using force and intimidation for the purpose of changing governmental policy is by definition domestic terrorism. That's what that group was using. And they were able to fundraise in massive amounts on a public platform, which was Facebook, Google, and Twitter. So when, when the shooting attack happens in Dallas, we, we, I saw these trends coming to Dallas. Um, you know, they, they, after we, we saw Ferguson, we saw Baltimore, um, and, it, and it was a, a big ramp up on social media about uh, Dallas being next, right? Prior to the shooting attack in Dallas, there were some radicalized hashtags. Um, trending on social media that I had uh, privy of seeing, right? And I went to a lot of our, um, you know, politicians, I was, and politicians, political leaders, law enforcement officials. Uh, they knew about these hashtags, but the problem was within law enforcement, we were unable to identify, truly identify these trends or how to stop them or how to how to follow them uh, because we essentially there there's kind of like a um, there there's a a problem with existing legislation that kind of allows these social media platforms to to um to let certain information through because we they're trying to weigh freedom of speech versus uh domestic terror you know on online mm -hmm. behavior right so um anyway make a long story short there was hashtag kill police hashtag f, f you know f the police um hashtag you know dallas and we saw these trends in dallas right so there was this image uh, circulating online, in, of which um, uh, one of the running backs from Cleveland Browns, I, I don't know if you remember this deal, he had um, circulated this image oh, yeah. of his head beheaded, right? <clears throat> and um, that image was trending on social media, right? It had been sh shared 5,500 times, um, 50, I'm sorry, 55,000 times on social media, and it was trending. And so at the same time, you have political groups in Dallas that want to do this protest. Now, a lot of people don't realize this, uh, but I was I was like one of these people. I was an, I'm an advocate in the community, so I was trying to prevent even having that protest in Dallas. Right, there was no reason to do it because we had worked out these race related issues in our community a long time ago. So uh, I was dealing with the with the executive leadership within Dallas. I was dealing with the community, and it was a, the black church that helped them organize a protest. So uh, just so happened to be a church that I was a member of. And so I went to the church and I was like, hey, man, there's no reason to host this, this protest. If you want to address these issues, we can, um, 
you know, we can have a town hall meeting. We can address our issues, but Dallas doesn't have the problem. We're not Cleveland, you know, we're not Ferguson, you know, this is completely different. But it's like, no, you know, SARS, they want to protest. They want to march. I'm like, okay, cool. If you want to do it, then do it at 12 o'clock in the morning. Don't do it at 7 o'clock at night, right? right. See, that's that's when you when you when you talk about this and you and you got to go back to my history and what I knew about the black nationalist movement. They organize they organized these protests at night strictly to hide behind the color, color of darkness, right? They knew exactly what they were doing. That's like the design of this thing. And I'm trying to explain to everybody, nobody want to listen, right? Until it's too late. You know, we have this, we lo and behold, this deal happens, the shooting attack happens. Uh, we have five officers killed, we have nine officers shot. And, and what I would say, Sarge, is that um, that's probably the most traumatic, man, it, look, I've been through some tragedies, but that scene, right, being at the hospital and, and seeing officers come in on the stretcher one after the other, I mean, that was like, I, I almost, I thought I was in a war zone, right, it, it was unreal, and at the same time, you know, once once all the dust settles, right, this is an immediate aftermath, our, our chief of police gets on um, you know, gets on national media and he says something about, I think his quote kind of, his quote went viral, right? The, we had to get these protesters off the picket line and tell them to put in the application, right? That was his thing. And that, it took off. Well, the problem is you, you got these radicals now that think that they have a place in, in law enforcement, right? That, it, it completely negated the fact that this was a, a radicalized Black Lives Matter, you know, uh, it wasn't a positive protest because they had they had people walking in the sign, f the police, uh, you know, burn the pig like bacon. They were these were chants, right? This wasn't even anyway. Make a long story short, this stuff was here. We saw that this was going to be radical. Our officers, by all indications of what had happened across the country, should have been in riot gear at that at that protest, right? But they wasn't, you know. We end up losing officers, right? Officers get shot and killed. And, uh, you know, I went to a lot of people, a lot of politicians, and, and hope I hope that they would get into the middle of it and they would address these, these issues that were in front of us. But the problem was um, it, it was too political because of race. Nobody wanted to say, nobody, if you were Black, you didn't want to condemn, condemn Black Lives Matter because they were going to say that you were a sellout or Uncle Tom. And if you were white, you didn't want to say anything because they're going to say you were racist. You definitely were going to say nothing, right? It was just a, you know, it was one of those things. And um, what I ended up doing was I ended up reaching out to uh, one of the most controversial attorneys in, in the country at the time was uh, Larry Clayman. Uh, he was the founder of Judicial Watch and, and uh, Freedom Watch. And I uh, reached out to Larry and, and uh, asked him if he'd get behind me. You know, look, I had been studying this. I knew a lot about um, you know, the, the negative trends, the, the, you know, how social media was working, how these groups were organizing, how, you know, I, mean, I, I knew a lot about the movement. And um, anyway, he agreed. I mean, he got behind me. I filed the federal lawsuit um, against Black Lives Matter. I named the president of the United States in the lawsuit, Barack Obama, uh, because he brought Black Lives Matter to the, to the White House right after they burned down Ferguson and told them they were making history, right? So if right. you think about you basically can you condone their behavior. So anyway, make a long story short, what I was trying to do in, in essence was bring attention to this, this radicalized behavior that that everybody in America was trying to ignore. And we did just that. I mean, that, that's what happened. Now, none of the judges wanted to touch it. 
because uh, subsequent to the Black Lives Matter lawsuit, I filed the uh, the lawsuit against Facebook, Google, and Twitter, right, for facilitating the attack in, in Dallas. And um, although they, even those entities got in court and they admitted that they knew that their platform was being used for nefarious means, they um, the court granted them protection under the um, outdated 1996 Communication Decency Act, Section 230, which basically gives these, these companies immunity protection for what third parties post on their platform. And um, look, I, I think, I think um, if nothing else, what it did was it paved the way um, for what we see today, right? That was what that was one of the reasons that I uh, I ended up, you know, connecting with the law, with with uh, with the White House at the time. And you got to remember, I was in out politically active in a lot of different different ways, and and um, you know that connected me to the Trump administration. Uh, I thank God every day for the Trump administration because these guys they showed me nothing but love. You know, I came in, uh, he offered me a presidential appointment to the White House, and I was like. You know, I was like right between right before time for me to retire. And uh, I was trying to weigh it out. You know, do I just leave my pension on the table and leave or do I take the, you know, take the appointment, which is my high, which would have been my highest honor. But, um, you know, I, I just I just thought the, you know, the pension was probably better suited. So I say I'm gonna run for run for Congress first. And when I finish, Trump will be here waiting on me. <laughs> so I ran. He ran. We both lost. So we out here. <laughs> It's all good. You know, I, I say at the end of the day, the experience was more than everything because I, I made so many connections. And uh, if, I, if I talk about the advocacy and the, and the things I really want to do for law enforcement, um, those experiences that I developed over the years, especially politically, opened the door for me to be able to do just that. Uh, just testified in front of Congress uh, about two months ago um, in front of their, their um, um, judiciary on, on on the homeland ter terrorism and, and homeland security and, and terrorism and, and crime in America. And um, look, the bottom line is we have a lot of flawed policies in this country that are subjecting our officers who are on the front line who have no choice but to go to work. I mean, that's their job. And, and if you think about it, anybody that would agree to go to work under these type of circumstances in this day and time, you have to take your hats off these guys. You got to do everything you can to protect them. So. Right. It is extraordinary the the people out there that are still on the street um, doing the job because, you know, not only are they worried about, um, you know, oh, gosh, am I, you know, am I going to get in trouble for, you know, maybe a policy violation? Or am I going to have a lawsuit? Now it's am I going to go to am I going to go to prison? Am I going to be indicted? Is my family going to be doxxed and endangered? It's so much worse. And just in the last seven or eight years it's gotten so much worse than it ever was before hasn't it yes it has you, you see you've seen these increased attacks i think uh, i was just looking at at one of the statistics uh the other day and i saw like a like a 63 percent increase in, in ambush style attacks on police officers right yep um you know people are, are emboldened to attack our officers because they they don't know they don't feel that they're going to be any consequences and in fact every city across this country has essentially shown that there are no no consequences for attacks on our police. So uh, I, I think as an advocate, I think we really have to start talking about uh, how we can develop somewhat of a federal uh, bill of rights for our law enforcement officers, right? Where we give these officers, if you think of uh, you think of hate crimes and how hate crimes are, are prosecuted, right? If you attack someone because of their uh, race, color, sex, or creed, you can be uh, you know federally indicted. Well, you know what? Uh, there's also a stipulation in, 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 in that same 
um, I think of USC 23, 23, that talks about, um, um, you, know, you know, hate crimes. And, and it talks about uh, individuals that are separated by identifying, uh, identifying uh, a mark or something, right? Right. These officers are being attacked specifically because they wear the uniform, which is, I think there's a great argument for, for um, protecting our police using similar hate crimes, saying that they're, because they're being attacked simply because of the uniform they wear, doesn't matter what, what color they are, it's simply because of the uniform that they're in. And, and I right. think we, we have an argument, we just need to continue to get law enforcement behind and push the narrative. Ah, you are so right, Sarge. Listen, we are almost out of time. Where can people find <laughs> you, follow you, and see what is happening with you in the future? Yeah, you know, you, you guys can learn more about me on, uh, you know, go to nationalfof.org. Um, right now, I don't have the political campaign going. I had a lot of people reaching out to me about running for office. And I, and I think right now, America needs me fighting for the interests of the people on the ground. And that's where I'm going to be. You know, this this is this is where everything's at right here. It's on, it's on the front line. And uh, like I said, go to nationalfof.org, learn more about us, learn about what we do, and get involved. Uh, every... A, a social group, law enforcement support group in this country that's that's protecting the our country. We need to connect with them, guys. I want to encourage you to do that. Absolutely. Doctor, thanks so much for spending time with us today. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.